Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Charlotte Prudhomme for a discussion all about permaculture through the context of the restoration of a former sand quarry on the beautiful island of Barbados. Spanning over 300 acres, Walker's Reserve stretches across low-lying coastal land and gradually rises inland to provide opportunity to regenerate a range of habitats. The site is being transformed from a highly extractive process to a multifaceted project that offers huge potential for biodiversity and healing of both the land and community. From recontouring and rewilding to establishing food forests, apiaries, dune and wetland restoration, developing an education and research institute and tackling the concerns of food security through involvement with the local community. They're addressing all of this on a site based on sand with the coastal challenges of salt and winds. Charlotte has experience from a range of different projects across the globe also and so she helps us to understand the general concepts of permaculture alongside some of the more specific learnings and approaches used at Walkers. Before we get into it, I'd like to mention that I'm reaching out to organisations and individuals to partner up with We Are Carbon for sharing messages far and wide about the power in our food choices. I'm reaching out at a very early stage while I'm developing the ideas, and it would be a huge help if you could take a few minutes to learn a little more and maybe fill out a survey if it sounds relevant to you. Look out for a link in this episode's description. So now let's get stuck in. Hi Charlotte, thank you for joining me today. Yes. It's, um, it's a huge pleasure to have you here and uh, talking, really we're talking about the topic of permaculture and this is something that uh, you've been involved in in many, many different guises. But before we get stuck in, if you can maybe offer some introduction to yourself and a little bit of information about your background. Sure, happy to do so and thank you for having me as well, Helen. Um, so I've been in the space now for a little bit of time. I actually started working on farms when I was about 16 in Costa Rica and absolutely fell in love with everything having to do with permaculture from there on. And from there, was blessed to be able to travel and learn at a lot of different farms and different places and kind of go on this journey of regeneration and have floated in all different kinds of spheres from consulting to teaching to working for different NGOs as well as different um, multinational aid organizations. So have been really um, hands-on learning uh, as well as the theoretical and the practical sides of things. But what I enjoy the most is being in different spaces and different farms where people work together and kind of bring these principles of permaculture about in a community way, in a community sense to, um, to share it and, and expand it and just delve into the work there. Um, so a lot of my background has been um, in the Caribbean as well as Central America, a little bit in Asia and Africa as well. Um, and now here I am in Barbados. Beautiful. It sounds very well traveled. It sounds very adventurous. 
And uh, before we get into any specifics of the projects that you're working on, would you be able to offer us an explanation of how you might describe what permaculture is to somebody that's never heard of the term before? Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a land management style, if you will, that um, follows a series of ethics that are actually trying to mimic nature and be very earth-centric. So doing what the earth would do. Um, it's a, also a way of creating self-sufficient systems. And the way that I like to break it down and use the physical verbal language is permanent and culture. So creating agricultural systems that actually become a part and integrated of your daily life that become a part of of your culture in the sense of what you're valuing, what you're working towards, what you share with others, and what serves the greater community. So some other elements of permaculture that we like to think about that are key and vital are capturing and storing energy, whether that be rainwater or the sun. These are powerful forces that we can't fight. Nature always wins, so better to harness them and use them to help us. So permaculture is really like an umbrella term and so many things can fit into that. One of those things I like to think about a lot is not just food production and food security, but also the way we design buildings, uh, buildings that can capture rainwater, gray water system, uh, incorporate green roofs, which then can help cool, reduce energy bills. So permaculture can really be a part of anything. Architecture, city planning, um, schools. It can be a lens, if you will, that can be applied to any concept. Um, even in your own kitchen, if you were to, for example, be renovating a kitchen, you can zoom in and see how through a permaculture lens you could look at it which may confuse some people because they think, what, that has nothing to do with gardening. But it's actually thinking about a whole system. And when we say whole systems thinking, incorporating all of the elements that may be a part of your daily life and how you can use nature to improve them and make things easier for yourself. So that might be thinking about the main pathways that you traverse throughout the day, what areas you frequent the most, and how you can enhance those areas, maybe with a fragrant smelling vine or a beautiful flower to help improve everything around you. Maybe that vine is also drinking excess water at the end of your gutter or shading out a part of your balcony. But it's also putting thought and intention into things so that things can serve you and serve multiple purposes and functions. So that's a couple different elements and themes um, tied in. And yeah, permaculture can really be for anybody, even if you don't feel like you have a green thumb or you don't feel like you're designing spaces. It's kind of a way of thinking. Yeah, so it's encompassing so much more than growing and even working on the land. It's a mindset, if you'd like. And all about integrating those daily activities, I suppose, that, that we, we have sort of to do throughout the day, but to make those 
harmonized with nature as opposed to um, being detrimental, I suppose. Everything that we do can go in one direction or the other and it can take a lot of thought um, if, if that isn't built into the routine. So I suppose there's nothing that's too small or too big that could be encapsulated in the mindset of, of, of permaculture. Also, and I love that you said integration because that is a key word as well. It's kind of integrating nature into our lives and how to bring it closer to us instead of creating more separations and more divisions, really um, harmonizing ourselves with the Earth's natural systems. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful because everything that we do it is um, nature that seems to we get out of the way of nature and it always has an ability to self-heal or to find a way to to really thrive within an environment and it's only really when we block that and we destroy that that um that that seems to um, be the problems within the world in in many ways so that that human interaction um becoming in tune with nature um that that can go an incredibly long way so you're currently joining us from this beautiful reserve in Barbados um, called Walkers. And this is a very large project that you're involved in. Could you offer us uh, a little bit of um, an overview of what the project is all about? Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. Um, so I've been on this project consulting as a regenerative specialist since November. So it's been about uh, eight months into my journey. However, the history of Walker's Reserve, and before that, the sand quarry, as the majority of Asians know it, or even the sand hole, extends much, much, much further, um, way before I was even born. So the site has been actually extracting silica sand, which is a building sand, for over 50 years. And this building material has been used all over the island in almost every single building. And so the quarry has a very strong tie to the whole community and the whole island because it has been like an essential building block of creating um, all of the construction all over the island. And now, that sand is coming to an end and the paradigm of mining is slowly coming to a halt. The owner and founder, Ian McNeil, has had this vision to transform the quarry into a regenerative site. So this is encompassing of many different projects. We have um, wetland restoration, some of the last existing protected mangroves in Barbados, food forests and orchards. There's also a nursery on site where people can buy local varieties of plants, including vegetables, herbs, and fruit trees. There's also an apiary program on site with over 40 beehives. So there's really a variety of projects happening on site. In addition to that, there's also a organization that has classrooms here that runs educational courses called the Caribbean Permaculture Research Institute, also referred to as CPRI. And so their main objectives are sharing the knowledge of sustainability, agriculture, food security, 
um, working with community members and international um, and key players as well, or uh, international stakeholders to put on educational courses and provide resources um, to people all over the world. We also host interns this past year. We had one from the UK, one from Czech Republic, and one actually just arrived today from California. So it's a very inviting space. The idea is to build a global community. Um, there is also a soup kitchen that operates out of one of the kitchens here at the reserve called Slow Food. And that is um, founded from by Ian's wife, Julie McNeil, who saw the need for a soup kitchen um, as there are many marginalized food insecure populations here in Barbados. And having lived here for many years, um, they are giving back to the community in a lot of different ways. That is one of them. So I tell you all of this to show that it's not just a nature reserve or an ecotourism operation, but the vision is much, much greater than that. It's trying to tackle food security from all different angles, from providing meals weekly for people on the island to selling fruit trees in our nursery and educating people on how to plant them and how to grow food for themselves, as well as permaculture gardens and orchards here where we produce food for, the, for multiple stakeholders. Again, um, the Organic Growers Association on island. We also supply some of our own farmers markets that we host. And we also supply a restaurant in a local nearby village called Loco & Co also founded by the McNeils. And so we have a whole farm to table circular economy going on right here at the reserve. So there's a lot of different projects happening. And the journey of regeneration has been not only the land and the physical soil, but also about regenerating the meaning of the quarry and what Bayesians know as a sample and bringing new value to it. So you can imagine planting in sand is a challenge. <laughs> in addition to that, we are also coastal. So we do have a fair amount of salt and wind that we're battling up against as well. So a lot of the regenerative work that we do is super grassroots and just starting from the beginning. We're planting in sand, which means we're not just healing the soil, but having to build the soil so we're starting from ground zero. If you look at photos from the mine from the past, you'll be amazed to see giant piles of sand, large cones of sand all over the site. Now the landscape and terrain looks much different. So much of the grading and contouring of the land has been complete as mining is reaching an end. Luckily enough, when they were digging for sand, they actually hit a few fresh water bodies. So have you ever been at the beach and you're digging, 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 and then you hit water? Yes, absolutely. So basically that's what happened here. And because of the geological formation of where we are here in the Scotland district, the water actually sits quite nicely on the limestone and it's called a perched aquifer. So this really was the biggest blessing of the entire project when they were digging, that they 
they found these two perched aquifers because those two freshwater bodies are what enable us to irrigate many of our orchards. So we use a pump out of the lake to actually irrigate a lot of the fruit trees. So in a way, and I mentioned that because in a way it seems like the site really wanted to be regenerated all along. And the fact that there was fresh water underground the whole time kind of brings to light a little piece of magic that the site wanted us to use that water and wanted to regenerate the soil and wanted to everything to come back to life. And without those two lakes, it would be very difficult to do so. So again, kind of nature just doing its thing, guiding us in the right direction and really enabling us to do a lot of the work. It's really cool because it's nature made. Yeah, that's fantastic. What a lucky find. Were the freshwater sources, were they found by accident during the actual mining phase at the site? Yeah, they were. <laughs> so you can imagine how thrilled they were. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. This is uh, so, so you might be starting with a very challenging slate, but you did have some luck along the way. No, nature along the way, for sure. Fantastic. Well, that's a very interesting and varied description um, of all the different activities that, that are going on at the site today. How long has the transition been between sand mine and reserve? So the transition started about seven or eight years ago, and that came in a lot of different phases. So the first phase was kind of um, the grading and leveling, getting the contouring down to a more um, reasonable <laughs> slope where water wasn't just coming off, especially here during the rainy season when it rains, it pours. So you can imagine the amount of erosion and soil, topsoil, whatever topsoil was there, um, was actually running off with the rains. So a lot of the initial grading was done almost terrace style to slow the runoff of water. And other phases included planting grasses and trees and pea plants in the regeneration, um, as well as coconut trees and other kinds of um, native species or mother species, if we will. So trying to rewild the areas and bring them back to how they were prior to mining. So some of the some of the mother species or native species might be like the almonds, the cashews, river tamarinds. Uh, actually, the castor plant that produces castor oil grows wild here, pops up everywhere in the sand. So a lot of these um, species coming up on their own, even when the site was left to just kind of regenerate and rejuvenate itself. So that was really neat to to see um, even just in the short time that I've been here, knowing that it's been happening for, for many, many years before. Um, one of the key, key players that I can't really go on too much further without mentioning is actually a grass. And you might be thinking, huh, a grass? What does that have to do with anything? But there's a very special and powerful grass that we have here um, that we use, it's called the vetiver grass locally referred to as cuscus grass and what's special about the vetiver what makes it such a uh, 
most valuable player, MVP, if you will, in the regeneration project is that its roots grow 10, 15, 20 feet deep. So not only are they holding the soil in place, but also allowing aeration to happen, allowing life to come back into the soil because roots are food and fuel for uh, mycorrhiza and fungi and bacteria to re-inhabit what was once sand. They also allow water and moisture to come down into the soil. And most importantly of all, they hold contour and hold slope, especially of something that erodes as quickly as sand. So a lot of the terraces and contouring that the site has been molded and maneuvered into is actually held by this vetiver grass. So we have thousands of thousands of vetiver on site. I couldn't give you a number to be honest, but I, I mean, it's probably close to a million. <laughs> <laughs> so that is one of the most um, most valuable things and one of the first things they started with seven years ago. And actually many of the crafts people um, will do weavings and different kinds of crafts with the dried tops of the grass. And the roots have also been used traditionally in the past here culturally um, as like a natural mothball type thing that you put in your drawer and the roots are very, very fragrant and sweet. Um, if you've ever smelled like a vetiver oil, an essential oil, it's actually extracted from the roots. And so a little root bundle, like a mini, mini broom, um, can actually, you know, provide such delicious, wonderful fragrance in your drawers. And we're making those here uh, as one of our value added products as well. And so many people that I've spoken to, younger generations, are like, oh, what is this? And, you know, I'm edu educating, sharing it with people, feeling like it's not my place to do so because it's really their ancestors and, and their, you know, grandparents that were using it, explaining that it's always been done in Barbados. We're just trying to bring it back. And then you get the older crowd as well, the more elderly folks who see it and instantly their face lights up because they recognize it and they know what it is. And it's just so interesting to see this generational gap in how we use plants and what meaning they have to us, which again, kind of goes back to culture and how permaculture isn't just about planting gardens, but the way that we interact with the plants around us. And so this grass not only helps us in, in restoring the land, but it's also been a key actor and, and vital player um, into having in people's households from baskets to keeping clothing fresh and everything in between. So it has so much history. That's really wonderful. When we think of, like you said, uh, as you introduce the grass, that you wouldn't expect it to be a grass that you talk about in such a practical and useful way, but it's doing the 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 side-by-side -side benefit of something that's very um, engineering, I suppose, for the land. It is, uh, with roots as deep as what you've described on the sand, it's very easy to imagine how that is holding things together and allowing the tide to turn, so to speak, in terms of the, the sand staying in place and the erosion being minimized and then, of course, the life coming back. So it's, it's engineering on the land and it's also offering, like you 
describe it as a value-added product, it sounds like something that is very beneficial as well to people. So these are um, wonderful examples. And it's hard not to notice that everything you described within the rewilding phase that was cropping back up was also of benefit to humans. So I think you mentioned castor oil plants and almonds. So, So that's very interesting. Did they have, you did describe it as rewilding, did they literally... Um, bring themselves back, um, even though the site had been so um, devastated with the events of the mining? Yeah, absolutely. So while a lot of the areas, as mentioned, were kind of contoured and planted with cuscus or steep slope patterning of cashews and almonds, um, also lots of biomass plants, like intentional things that we would use for chop and drop, like laricidia um, or moringa, while we did intentionally, um, I can't say weeks, I wasn't here yet, but while they did do those types of um, land engineering planting schemes, there were many areas also left on their own to rewild and to come back with native species. So as mentioned, a um, few, I said already, river tamarind, different things, but also uh, clammy cherry, even a, a French cotton, which is actually, um, the monarch butterfly's favorite plant. So the French cotton comes back all over where it's been left to sand and it just springs up everywhere and the butterflies love it. Um, As well as guinea grass. Guinea grass um, grows wild here, which again, we use intentionally to plant it near our crops, cut it and drop it down onto the beds to create a living mulch. And doing that for years and years and years, eventually building that organic matter, building that topsoil and that level of hummus and life, covering the soil, allowing it to develop over time, um, basically covering the sand with as much organic material as possible has allowed the site to regenerate itself, to come back to life, if you will, and heal from some of the devastating impacts of the previous mining. It's a demonstration that nature knows what she's doing, as she always does. And um, when you think of um, destroying the soil on a farm, um, uh, we we can go from very rich soil to to almost like sand and dirt. Um, But the added complexity here, of course, is that we've removed material in the process of mining. Did that provide an opportunity to replenish the land or was it just a case of working with what was there to even out the contours? Was any material brought to the site? That's actually a great question and it is a question that we get quite often on our tours. And yes, initially we did bring in soil from different areas, different um, farms to kind of help kickstart and almost inoculate, if you will, the sand with some microbes and different things to help start everything off, especially in the garden area. So filling the raised beds. However, there were also a lot of different resources and materials that we did have on site. For example, a lot of our raised beds are made out of casuarina trees. So if you're not familiar with casuarina, it's like a pine looking tree that you wouldn't think that really about when you think Caribbean. Um, but I also worked with casuarina quite a bit in the Bahamas and they're quite, um, frequent on beaches and things and provide really nice shade 
as well as erosion control. But the Casarina is a very, very hard wood. Um, it is difficult to work with, but it makes a beautiful raised bed um, because it takes so long to break down and deteriorate. So a lot of the logs that we use for raised beds actually provide, if you will, a living container for the soil to be inside. Over time, as these logs break down, they help to continue, continuously feed and fuel the soil because the fungi can feed off of the wood matter and other life can feed off of the decaying matter. So those types of things, using them in a way where they're actually serving the system, um, even though we cut those trees to use them, they do spring back and regenerate themselves. So it's kind of a win-win. Um, the other part of using the logs in a lot of our raised beds is that we cover them again with mulch and with grass so that if you think about the log as a sponge, if you leave a wet sponge in the sun, it's gonna dry out. But if you cover the wet sponge with something wet, the moisture is gonna stay in there and it's gonna hold moisture for the bed. And so by covering the logs with mulch, if you kind of, I like to show people on our tours, lift the mulch up and stick their hand in there and feel how wet it is. Even though the bed hasn't been irrigated maybe for a day or two, the moisture is still there in the soil. And so we're just using um, lots of mulching. I mean, I'm sure you hear it, you talk to regenerative ag people every week, but mulching, 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 just the key to regeneration. And um, so it seems quite simple, but a lot of our regenerating of the site has been with grasses like the cuscus and the guinea grass that we cut, we chop and drop. Also the glaricidia, the moringa, the really fast growing nitrogen fixing trees that we grow intentionally. Actually, if you come visit us on either side of our orchard, you'll see the patterning. It's one row of cuscus and then one row of glaricidia. And we chop it and drop it down onto the bed. And this has allowed the orchards to get to the point that they are now. Um, considering that they started out in pure sand. So to come back to the question, yes, we did initially bring in some material, mostly soil, but now we're really using biomass and basically plants that we're growing for organic matter on purpose to cut and drop down. There are some materials that we've um, brought in from sugarcane factory that's actually using the byproduct of sugarcane for certain plants. So there's an ash mix and um, also a bagasse mix that is actually a really light, fluffy, um, aerated soil that pineapples really love. So um, there's also a, a couple rum distilleries on island that also have um, sugarcane and other byproducts that they've been able to make compost and soil mixes. So even when we have been kind of importing materials from the outside, we like to think that we're still supporting and taking part of the circular economy, supporting local businesses, and a lot of the material, if it does come in from offsite, it still comes from on island. We haven't imported anything from the outside, except for a, another species of grass, crazy grass lady, um, <laughs> called the Mombasa grass. We haven't gotten our hands on it quite yet. We're still working with the Ministry of Agriculture to import it. But the Mombasa grass is unique because it provides a very lush, dense, thick biomass. But unlike the couscous and the guinea grass, 
Mombasa thrives in the shade. So if you go on a YouTube spiral or YouTube binge on Mombasa grass, you'll see many, many different farmers in Africa and Asia and all over using it in their systems. And basically that is for when your orchard has matured and your trees are tall and they're shading out your grass, that the Mombasa grass will still grow in the shade and that you can continue chopping and dropping and generating mulch. And the Mombasa grass I learned about from our recent uh, Centropic Agriculture course that we hosted here at the reserve through CPRI, the Caribbean Permaculture Research Institute. And we were lucky enough to host Mr. Tiago Barbosa, um, Australian, Colombian, Centropic Agriculture consultant and specialist with Centropic Solutions. Um, would also be a fantastic interviewee for you. Happy to put you guys in touch. But he came to visit us and to um, teach us a little bit more about Centropy and how we can apply those concepts on site. And uh, of course, in introduced us to the wonderful world of Mombasa. So always learning. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, I suppose that's a really big key of everything that's going on is people are able to continually feed you with new information from other projects and um, vice versa. You must have plenty to share. That is truly one of my favorite things about this space and this career path, which I know we'll get to later, but it's all the cross-pollination that happens and all the sharing that happens um, and just everything that overlaps together in the space. getting bits and pieces from different farms and kind of putting it all together and lots of trial and error, seeing what works in different regions and climates with different community members, different staff, and getting fluidity from it all. Yes, how wonderful. And um, the site that you're on at the moment, how big is it? So it's about um, 300 plus acres. There was a second piece of it that was acquired later on, uh, kind of an addition. And that site hasn't been touched yet. It's completely just left for rewilding. Um, it's also, as I mentioned, all coastal. So there's lots of dune restoration happening as well. Um, <laughs> to the qualm of many invasions, the Walker's Beach actually used to be like a off-roading site where people would come and drive on the beach which is a um, kind of another cultural thing here. People love um, rally car and driving race cars and that type of thing. So um, it's now, of course, left for regeneration and cannot drive on the beach any longer. But there are so many benefits, like the leatherback turtles have started to return nesting on the beach and the dunes have completely restored themselves with ground cover from um, cocoa plums, to uh, a crawling, creeping vine we call goat's foot um, and other species that have sprung back and are also holding the sand in place and um, really keeping the beach and coastal erosion is, of course, a massive challenge that we're facing here in the Caribbean. Um, but Walkers is kind of serving as a climate resilience model for the rest of the Caribbean on what kind of efforts can be put in place to um, restore natural coastal ecosystems. That's wonderful. So there's there's just this continual um, benefit in all the different directions. 
Um, obviously, being coastal, you've mentioned that the salt is um, another issue that you're dealing with. And you uh, did also say that there's mangroves um, that you're working on. Could we talk a little about those and how, how that's benefiting the site? Sure. Um, well, to be completely upfront, mangroves are not my area of specialty. And we do have someone who manages the wetland restoration but um, our mangroves are in a brackish body of water called Long Pond. And it's actually um, a very well-known site in Barbados because of its um, naturally occurring coconuts. And people in this area and in this community, um, the Scotland district and surrounding village, which is Belle Plain, will come and have come for years to harvest coconuts and to kind of hang out and meet at Long Pond. It's kind of this iconic geographical site. And so now that we've um, been working on black, brown, and red mangrove restoration, the site has brought even more attention because as I mentioned, it is one of the last existing mangroves in Barbados. And um, sadly, another place that did have mangroves called Graham Hall has been you could say mismanaged from an environmental perspective in the past and is now facing some challenges with sewage and drainage and other um, very tricky environmental and political overlaps. And so it has almost been like even more of an honor to have the mangroves here on site and we feel even more compelled to take really good care of them because we don't have control over a lot of the other mangroves throughout the country, but at least here the land is protected. And so um, when we have our educational tours, which is everywhere from locals to tourists to school children and school groups, um, we bring people through Long Pond area and we do show them the mangroves and many people are shocked to see them. They truly honestly didn't know that mangroves were here or that there was such a biodiversity or different types even of mangroves. So um, it's been a pleasure working with them and we call it our mangrove nursery because we actually use dried fallen palm fronds to build around the mangroves to protect them from um, people treading and we build the trail around the mangroves so that they're not um, stepped on in any way. So we're really kind of um, trying to conserve and protect while also educate, but in a non-invasive way and just letting them come back. And um, similarly to the dunes having previously been driven on, the mangrove area was previously grazed by cattle um, and so after the cattle grazing came to an end, the mangroves sprung back on their own. And the site, again, regenerated itself with um, the minimal, minimal grazing happening. So although we think of animals and regeneration going hand in hand, in this case, in terms of wetland restoration, the impactation of the from the hooves of the animals was actually preventing the mangroves from flourishing. So with a little bit of adjusting um, and just deterring the cows, an extra 
600 feet outside of the brackish water, we were able to let the mangroves come back. So really minor kind of movements and just not controlling the plants, but just tweaking it to make it able to uh, come back to itself in a self-sufficient way. Yeah, very lovely. It's, uh, it's again, it, it, it sounds like um, as so long as there's um, some care and consideration being put in from the human part of things, then the, the natural world is figuring its way and is able to regenerate in, in, in some very challenging circumstances. And uh, that, that's very impressive. It always um, impresses me. You know, it doesn't matter how far you look. Um, this seems to be the same story. We just need to nurture rather than get in the way of, of the regeneration itself. Um, in terms of this site, um, supporting the people of the island, is that a challenging um, mix compared to the job opportunities and the income that was generated from the mining? Has that been able to be um, recovered and replaced in new ways throughout the reserve? Yeah, so that is an excellent point, excellent question, um, twofold. So in terms of mining and mining coming to an end and having to generate new financial ways to keep the reserve open and operating, um, we have been aiming to bring in agro-tourism and eco-tourism to generate revenue for the site. Um, in addition, there are some of the crops that we sell that, um, as mentioned previously, that we supply to restaurants that is also generating revenue for the site. But as you can imagine, um, especially during the low tourism season, the finances aren't exactly the same as what they might have been in the past. So yes, to be completely transparent, that is one of our greater challenges here at the reserve are finding the financial means to support the operation without the use of, of an extraction of sand. And I think that will always be um, a, grow, a challenge for us and it will be a never ending project. It, could, it will be going on for the next 50 years and more. There's never ending work to do. There's always things to improve. And a big part of that is integrating the local community, as you mentioned, not in any project, not even a regeneration project, but any any project, it is impossible to function without incorporating the locals and creating an inclusive space. Um, so that is something that thankfully the founders have always taken to heart and taken into consideration, which um, was a, having a lot to do with the emergence of slow food and the soup kitchen, but um, creating opportunities for people to come, to become involved, and a lot of our employees do come from the local community of Belle Plaine. A lot of people walk to work from down the street. Um, there's a school, you know, a three minute drive away. So the community is very close knit. And um, from all the different operations happening on site, there's been a lot of different ways for people to create livelihoods for themselves through the project. Um, despite the end of stand. So we have staff that work in our nursery. We have staff that do irrigation. Uh, we have staff that do woodworking and carpentry and construction. 
We have staff that work in the vegetable gardens. There are staff that do pruning in the orchards. There are staff that uh, prune and harvest coconuts and on and on and on. So the opportunities for involvement are endless and we have a very holistic process of bringing people on site and we actually give preference to locals. Um, even if someone might not necessarily have a background in agriculture or gardening, we don't consider ourselves a production farm. We're really an educational site at the heart of it and at the foundation of things. And so if some young woman who's 17 who comes, who's never worked on a farm before, I might not necessarily turn her away because I remember being in that place and I didn't know what arugula was. And for me, it's more important to teach somebody and let them integrate with the system that's a few walks away from their doorstep and give them the opportunity to learn and to build that. And then maybe they'll go and share with five other people or maybe they'll bring a friend the next week to volunteer to work. And those are the types of ties that also create that value in the local community and that really allow the project to flourish in a holistic way with the true support of people. And there are staff and employees that have been here for seven, eight years since the start of the project. Um, they've truly been on since the beginning. They remember every single couscous grass that they planted out in the quarry and it's just, it just keeps growing. Um, we have people working here all the way from 16 to 60. And it is just so cool to see everybody working together. Um, I myself am actually the only foreigner on site. Everyone else is Bayesian. Um, and they welcomed me with open arms and I felt nothing but love. So I'm very thankful to be here and they've integrated me into their community as well. Oh, that's very special for you then, yeah. to to be involved. Yeah, how lovely. And uh, it, it sounds very close-knit, like you say, very much like um, a sort of a lifestyle rather than a, a job that would be sort of really punishing and hard-focused. It sounds, yeah, great fun um, alongside. Does the site... Um, is it successfully growing a lot of the food that is being used for the staff and then also within the restaurants and everything that um, is a part of this now? Yeah, so that is an excellent question. Um, also another frequently asked question we get um, on tours. And to be totally transparent, there are some great successes and some great failures. Um, one that I'm looking at right now, which we're really super duper proud of is um, our grapevine. And it was like everything else done as an experiment. Um, it is one of the first things you see when you enter the site and it is absolutely booming, flourishing. We have grapes on it right now. We actually harvest multiple yields um, per year. And the chef at Local & Co, who's actually um, from the UK, she has spent time in Greece and has even put dishes on using the grape leaves. I mean, the, the food, has been a really a great joy truly to work with um, as well as the coconuts are something that we're constantly harvesting and constantly supplying as the coconut water but also the dried coconut husks which is used endlessly here in fish curries um, sweet breads different types of things um, some of our other successful crops have been edible flowers we just have a lot on site and because of all the lovely bees that we have through our apiary there's 
um, a pollination party happening all the time. And we have beautiful flowers. Um, a lot of our other successful crops have been Shadow Benny, which is a Mexican culantro, which has incredible medicinal properties that I've actually just learned about since being here as well as being a delicious herb. But it grows very well in wet shade. So it likes to grow under the bananas, um, under some of the larger trees like mango trees or, or jamun trees. Um, and restaurants love it for aiolis and cocktails and sauces and all types of things. So never grow enough Mexican culantro or shadow benny. Um, we've had real success with basil. We actually have too much basil. We don't know what to do with it. I've made pesto for the farmer's markets. I've made pesto pasta for the kids, all types of things in between. Um, I'm looking now into trying to either dry it for an herb mix or doing a basil oil. So just never ending possibilities for value added products. And we're always looking for help from interns and, and volunteers and local community community members to help us do these types of things as well. Another thing we have an abundance of is um, the moringa leaves, which are incredibly nutritional, um, both eaten raw as we do when we're in the orchards, we snack on them, um, also eating the seeds. And we've gone ahead and experimented with making a moringa powder, so dehydrating it, grinding it up, packaging it. Um, a couple other of our successful plants, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the loofah sponge. It's actually like a tactile oh, body yes, sponge. Yes. Yeah, so the loofah loves the hot tropical climate here and actually is quite salt tolerant. So we've had good luck with the loofah. Um, one thing we do have a challenge with are the leafy greens. So the kales, the spinaches, the bok choys, um, the caterpillars, just love those. Um, and then a couple in the middle, like, um, tons of aloe vera, tons of lemongrass, um, lots of passion fruit vines when they're done in the right place in the right way and, and maintained, we've had great success. Um, lots of bananas, lots of plantains. Um, we, in the orchard, we have carambola, star fruit, um, Bayesian cherry, Jamaican ackee, um, endless, endless varieties. So it's really fun kind of seeing what's come up and we're always expanding. We've just done a new plot of pineapples and we're planning to do a couple hundred more, again, which is a huge demand for restaurants. And could do a whole nother episode on this, but one of the reoccurring themes I have seen working in the Caribbean the past couple of years is just the amount of imported foods here. And I know we're not alone. Many countries kind of face these challenges and difficulties, but particularly here, it's quite frustrating to go into the grocery store and see pineapples from Costa Rica and cans of coconut milk from Thailand when we know that we can grow these things here and we can produce these things here. We just don't have the infrastructure necessarily to package and process. And as people speak more and more about carbon, which um, you know got brought up last week, I was at a sustainable tourism conference through the Barbados Tourism Marketing Industry. And one of the main focuses is on carbon. And, you know, it's challenging to speak about carbon and airplanes and how many tourists are coming in when we're not acknowledging that a lot of our emissions come from importing food, um, billions and trillions of dollars of it. So I think the more we can, you know, it goes without saying, but localize and ramp up local food security is, you know, the best thing we can do. Yes.
it's such like you've described there such a huge variety of foods that can be grown um and it's those ones that can be grown locally that it would be a terrible shame not to um uh, be looking at how how that can then avoid the imports of those particular products so it sounds like there's always new ground to cover and expand into which is always exciting and and you know briefly to touch on um one of the challenges that we do face here in Barbados which some of the other islands don't necessarily face are actually monkeys and um this is something that is a bit controversial because um, monkeys are a big pull for tourists. They're very cute and fuzzy, and especially when they have their babies on them, it's just such a sight to see. They're very special. However, monkeys here are considered a pest. They are very destructive. They will pull sour sops off the tree, take one bite, and throw it on the ground. And so actually, working in the nursery and having the pleasure of speaking with a lot of different Bayesians, a lot of people have gotten to the point of um, just straight up discouragement where they don't want to plant gardens and they don't want to plant fruit trees because they say, why should I? The monkeys are going to come and get it first. And fences and cages and all types of different things are costly interventions that a lot of people don't necessarily have the time or means to um, develop that type of infrastructure. And so the challenging part about the monkeys is while they are very cute and fuzzy, they are actually a non-native invasive species and were brought over by the British as pets. So the legend goes um, back in the day and they're still here on island. And as the monkey population continues to grow, people are finding it harder and harder to grow food. And so this is definitely something that is coming to a point where we can't avoid it for much longer. Um, there actually is a program through the government that is like a bounty. So if you bring a monkey tail, you can get paid like $25 per tail, which makes sense. It's like where I grew up in New Jersey, we have so many deer, um, people hunt them and they eat the venison. Um, monkeys kind of a different story, not necessarily the best jerky and a little bit harder to conceptualized eating, especially from a Western perspective. But um, there have been discussions of sterilization programs, which have worked in Africa and Asia, which don't affect the monkeys in any type of emotional or psychological way. They can still live happy, fruitful monkey lives. Um, but controlling the population to give Asians a chance at growing their own food is definitely something that's coming more and more into conversation. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. It's like um, something I just wouldn't have thought of at all. Not being, uh, you know, aware of of these issues is, um, and like you said, they are very cute. It's hard to, um, yeah. I don't really want to be gathering at monkey tails myself, but um, it's all a very, very big part of the reality of it, something that's such a big pest that it's deterring people from growing their own food, that there, there has to be, um, yeah, considerations put into place. And, um, yeah, I suppose there's, there's pests of some description in all different ecosystems and being non-native, does that mean that there just isn't any natural predators for them? Exactly. 
yeah, so it's a challenge for sure. I call it the elephant in the room, but it's really fun. Yes, it's not an easy one. I can imagine it's really not an easy answer to it. That's uh, it's a factor for us. It really is. I remember during my initial interview to come on site, they said, so do you have any experience with monkeys? You mean petting them? Like, what are we talking here? But um, yeah, they're they're quite sneaky too. They know they're very smart. They know when we when we leave. Like, we our work day is from seven to three. So if you drive around the reserve around five five thirty, they're all in the orchards and they're in the fruit trees and they're having a big party. I suppose they're just too intelligent to to create some kind of uh, block for them. They just work their way around it. <laughs> What a shame. Is there any other impacts that you would say the transition from the mine to the reserve has had on the local wildlife? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the most exciting initiatives truly for us has been working with an organization called Birds Caribbean. And I actually previously wasn't aware, but apparently there's a whole community of bird birders, bird watchers who travel all over the world just to tick off certain um, varieties of birds and so we have this um, pull now with the freshwater lakes that lots of birds are coming and actually using it as a migratory resting spot so birds that previously weren't flying through Barbados now are um, coming through and that's not just attributed to us but also um, kind of the transition into more organic agriculture, less spraying, less pesticides, less fertilizers in general in the country as a whole has allowed both the bird and bee populations to flourish. And so um, the whole ecosystem has really come to be so rich and diverse. If you walk up to any of the fresh um, bodies of water, you see little tadpoles on the side and there's lizards running about, there's dragonflies, there's um earthworms there's all types of critters that have really come back that definitely were not there when they were mining sand so again it's cool to kind of see nature doing its thing and just being resilient with very little um, engagement from us just kind of holding the space for a fresh body of water and leaving it be and everything seems to just come back um yeah, there's no words to explain it. It's just nature. It's just lovely. I can hear the birds now. It's uh, <laughs> It sounds so full of life. And uh, they sound very colourful. I can't see them, but they're, they're just, yeah. What a lovely range of uh, of sounds that they make. And, of course, that, that that's a sign that the other insects and everything else is becoming more diverse, as you've said. So, yeah, wonderful stuff and... Um, in terms of the other projects that you've worked on, because I know that this is one of many for yourself and your own experience, have you come across what you might consider to be mirrored um, aspects within different locations around the world, but there are sort of these um, similarities or something that could kind of mirror across each time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There are a couple overlapping themes Um, One, I would say that no matter where you are, what country you're in or what culture you are, giving locals 
a feeling like they really are true stakeholders and they have a say and they have a place in the project is probably the number one most important thing because you could go in anywhere and want to set up any project but if you don't have the local ecosystem if you will working with you you're not going to get very far and that is just a key part again and again i see how powerful it is um, really making people feel heard making people feel like they have a place and a long-term one at that and like their children and their children's children will benefit from what you are trying to do and from your objectives and maybe even if people don't have that level of foresight at the time after a half decade or a decade or so people start to see and they start to understand and more people will come on board and so it's really like you can't tell you have to show and it's hard because these things take time they really do especially re-establishing land building educational campuses um harnessing the power of, of international communities. Always have to kind of keep your boots on the ground and remember what's around you. Um, I would say that's a really, really key, important, important factor. Um, another thing is I think there's always more room for university involvement and volunteers. There's always research to be done, experiments to be trialed, even if it's just a little 20 by 20 plot of land that you give someone and you say, let your imagination run wild. If you want to start a vermicompost system here, go for it. If you want to trial a new species of, of bean, of ground cover, go for it. You can empower people to do so much and start them on a journey if you just give them a little bit of something that they truly want to do. So for example, when interns come, I'll give them a list of maybe 20 to 30 things that we would love to see done here at the reserve, but never would I assign something to somebody. They have to choose what they want because if their heart is not calling for it, it's not gonna it's not gonna happen. And it's not gonna happen in a in a holistic way where they're gonna wanna pass on the project to somebody else or ensure its longevity. Just like the other day I went to go buy pineapples from this awesome guy and we talked for about an hour and a half after. And he just kept saying, please just make sure you keep them alive and make sure you plant them this way. And I was like, I, my heart was singing because never have I had that experience of going to a plant nursery. Usually it's just business as usual. You sell the plants, the person, customer drives away, boom, done. They did theirs, they made their sale. But this particular grower was so passionate and ensuring that his crop was gonna go into good hands. And it was, they were like his babies because he's worked so hard on it. It's his side hobby, his side passion. And you could tell that he's just so into it that that's that nothing can replace that. That level of commitment and love for something, that's the most important thing. So that's kind of another overlapping theme I would see. Um, if people aren't doing something that they love, then it's not gonna be done well. And it's definitely not gonna have longevity. Um, and the last two factors I would probably note of just overlapping themes from everywhere I've worked. One, food security is always, always, always an issue. Even in areas that you wouldn't traditionally think of as marginalized, for example, the nation's capital in the US where I went to school in Washington, DC, 
one um, district, one area of the district has four supermarkets and 15 to 25 minutes away, there are no supermarkets and it's a complete food desert. And you wouldn't think that there is that kind of divide, but there usually always is. And um, even when you least expect it, food security is always a factor. Um, the last thing I would mention is that I'm a little bit of a hard ass in this stance because I truly believe in certain educational systems. And especially after having worked in a forest school last year during COVID, my eyes were just open to so much more. But I truly believe that a lot of public school curriculum, not all, but many, all over the world is just garbage. And to be honest, kids are not getting what they need to be resilient, to thrive, and to adapt to this world. Children are not getting the time or nature exposure in nature. They're not receiving the, um, the, the right amount of like guidance on how to interact with this changing world. Um, I mean, I had a friend who grew up in the South who used to learn square dancing. And, you know, to this day, like she's called me, Charlotte, how do I grow cucumbers in my garden? I just think that as a culture, we've lost sight of what is important and what we really need in order to thrive as human beings. And we just need to deliver that more directly to children in schools and have more nature-based education and more nature-based curriculum. Well, I suppose all of those um, aspects are somewhat tied together because it's the the passion to connect with the natural world, the passion that sort of ignites people to, to live from the heart and to to be excited about, for example, the chap selling his pineapple um, saplings. That That is something that has come because he is reconnected or he is connected with the work that he's doing and so much of that joy is coming from working with nature. And I suppose from the education side of things, We've, we've put a very deliberate focus on progress, but given a lot of oversight to what that actually looks like in terms of just being human and uh, being part of the world that's around us. And it's not even just disconnecting from the natural world, but from each other too, um, to communities and the people directly who live down the road from us. It's all... Um, it's, it's almost like an absence from our lives, isn't it? That yeah, your work seems to, to, to be very fulfilling in that side of things, and that's wonderful. Um, with, with regards to that and the, the different roles that you've taken in life, from teaching to also being a part of these projects, would you have any advice to people that considered something similar with regards to a career path? And, and what would be um, your thoughts on who that's for and what kind of um, life that creates? Because it sounds very exciting and to see you there in Barbados, you're working um, every day on this beautiful island. That, that obviously offers you um, a whole lot in terms of uh, satisfaction from your job. But do you have any sort of thoughts to round it out? Yeah, absolutely. Um... I would say for someone who's kind of looking to come into this field that um, a lot of their education will be self-directed and you know you will have to take initiative to kind of chart your own path and create your own learning 
So I think I briefly mentioned um, first time I went to Costa Rica as a teenager, I fell in love with agriculture and from there just started finding volunteer opportunities with NGOs and I mean, I babysat for 15 years and mowed lawns and did everything in between to fundraise for myself to go to Indonesia. The, the day I finished my master's degree, I flew to the Cool Cool Farm at the Green School to do my permaculture design course. And I had, you know, checked that box, university, got it, got the degree, mom and dad, now let me go do what I know I need to be learning and the things that are of value to me. And I'm so thankful for all the opportunities I've had for education, but a lot I've learned the most from just working on farms and spending time around different people, um, having different experiences. And thankfully now a days, it is quite easy to do that with programs like woofing or um, work, different work exchange, volunteer type things, interning, and just the more exposure you get. I mean, the, the things to learn to be human are endless from fermenting to building with bamboo to regenerating soil to growing food crops to agroforestry and thinking about how we can cool the earth's climate through through tree planting and everything in between um animal husbandry there's so many things to learn and there's more resources out there now than ever before it's incredible that you can go on youtube and you know spend the whole day learning about homesteading or any type of skill like that. But the more that you do things in person and the more that you carve out your time to be there, um, boots on the ground is the more that you'll absorb and the more that you'll, you'll learn. And things will just come to you, opportunities will flow and you can find what path best suits you. But there's lots of different ways to um, be fluid in the space and connect with people who are passionate about the same things and similar things. And one thing always leads you to the next, right? So I came here to work on regeneration and a couple months ago, as mentioned, ended up learning about syntropy and syntropic agriculture, which kind of set me on this whole other picture and, and learning journey that I hadn't been previously exposed to in any of my other agricultural roles. So I'm always learning, I'm constantly learning um, I see myself working on this project for quite a bit of time, but I also want to um, work and experience farms and climates, doing cacao and coffee in Hawaii and um, potentially going and doing some work in Thailand. And I think this is going to be a lifelong journey for me, and I'm just excited to keep working on it all. Very lovely. So it's just not very static at all. It's something that you're continually, um, continually moving through. And, and that's fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for sharing so much with us. Is there anything more that you feel that you'd like to add today before we leave? Uh, I feel like I should have some big, big shebang here, final <laughs> words or something <laughs> to leave you with, uh, with some meaning. But I would say even just doing the small things, like planting a little row of flowers or something um, to get your hands in the soil and integrate with nature will bring you joy. And it's something that we can all take time to do and kind of just slow down and think about the bigger systems around us. Um, even trees, just how they store water in the ground and how the shade 
provide us with and how long they take to grow. So if we're planting those things now and they help someone in 50, 60 years, like this big 100-year-old tamarind tree we have here on site that everyone, all the staff gather under for lunch, then that's just one one tree that might have taken five minutes to plant, but it's got this incredible everlasting legacy. And so nature can help carry out small actions into the long term. And that's just, that's just a powerful thing. And I think the more that we integrate ourselves with, um, with the earth, that the better we are off and the better that our future generations will be off. That's lovely. Yeah, I like that. Um, well, thank you. And the simple things are the ones that we can all uh, make a difference through. So they are the most powerful in the end. Uh, yeah, that's true. Well, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and truly get to hope you get to come visit us one day and also to chat with some of the other very cool um, regeneration projects happening on this island and throughout the Caribbean at large. But I'll keep tuning in to your podcasts and learning from your community as well that you're sharing with everybody and so thankful for the time you're taking to carve out this project so thank you thank you no it's wonderful it's very exciting and uh, a beautiful story that you've had to share so thank you very much appreciate it and best of luck with everything going forward thanks so much likewise and thank you for listening to this episode of we are carbon Next time, we'll be joined by Michael Twist to take a deep dive into the origins and development of a new digital currency that he's creating to provide a tool for tackling the regeneration of living environments across the globe. By tying organic carbon to profit and making involvement accessible to even the very smallest of sites, this could provide a unique opportunity for supporting people and planet side by side. New episodes will now be added every other Tuesday, so don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. And remember to check the description if you'd like to assist with some guidance on my new initiative for shouting loudly about the power in our food choices. So let's keep figuring this all out together. <laughs>